Hello, and welcome to Stern Chats. I'm Melanie Gonzalez. And I'm Kathleen Dillon. Today, we interviewed Professor Lisa Leslie, who's an Associate Professor of Management and Organizations at NYU Stern. I really enjoyed learning more about Professor Leslie's research, which focuses on strategies for facilitating social justice and strong performance in diverse organizations. She also conducts research in the related areas of cross-cultural organizational behavior and conflict management. So with that, let's get started. From New York University Stern Campus, this is Stern Chats, the podcast that tells the hidden stories between the lines of someone's resume. In the interest of serving the Stern community, building relationships, and unlocking important life lessons, we present these stories to a wider audience. Hi, Professor Leslie. We're so excited to have you on Stern Chats today. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. So Kathleen and I are really interested in learning more about your career and your research around diversity and inclusion in the workplace. We would love to start off with learning more about what first drew you to research in academia. Um, So it was sort of a funny story, but the honest answer was um, in undergrad, I went to Princeton and everyone at Princeton has to do an undergraduate research thesis. Um, And I was a psychology major, so that meant doing something empirical. And um, so really the reason I first got interested in research was because I had to do it. Um, But I just loved doing my thesis. I love the process. I had um, a wonderful advisor. My advisor was Susan Fisk, who is um, a very famous social psychologist who studies stereotyping. I mean, she's probably one of the most famous social psychologists in the world in general right now. Um, Just an incredibly amazing, supportive, wonderful mentor. So between that and just loving the process, that's kind of what what first hooked me. Um, and then she invited me to, to stay on after I graduated and be a research assistant for her for a year and then apply to grad school, and it all just kind of went from there. And after more broadly studying psychology as an undergraduate and, and staying kind of in that field immediately after school, what eventually led you to kind of narrow specifically into the areas of diversity and organizational behavior? Yeah, so I um, I did my thesis in social psychology, and it was on stereotyping, um, in large part because that's what Susan studied, and I thought it sounded kind of interesting. But I think, you know, the more I got into the topic, the more fascinating I found it, and I just continue to be really fascinated by this idea that, you know, we look around at other people in our social world, and we see their service-level characteristics, right? Are they man or are they woman? Um, are they a minority or are they a white person? Um, all those other characteristics. And on some level, you know, they're not always meaningful, but we make these very deep inferences based on other people, based on just kind of the, the groups they belong to. And that really has a powerful impact on our psychology and our behavior. And so that was the initial idea that I found so, so interesting um, and, you know, certainly problematic at times as well. Um, and so that's kind of what we got interested in the topic. It's a topic that's studied both in social psychology, more based discipline, and in organizational psychology and organizational behavior. Um, and so from there, it just became a matter of applying to lots of different graduate programs um, and finding the place where, you know, I found an advisor who was a really good fit. Uh, that happened to be the University of Maryland, which is an organizational psychology program. Uh, and there's the same thing with looking at jobs after that. Um, so my first job was at the University of Minnesota in a business school, and then uh, about seven or eight years ago now, I, I moved to Stern. Um, so I think it's mostly just about you know fit and finding the places that um, where I was able to pursue the topics I was really interested in. 
Um, but then also, I think I was drawn to, to business schools and organizational behavior just because I have an interest in not just the basic process, what's going on in our heads, but what are the real world implications? What does this mean for organizations and society? And what are the, the practical solutions and implications? And we we noticed in in learning more about you ahead of this interview that you teach only graduate courses. Is that by design? Do you really enjoy teaching at the graduate level? Um, have you also taught undergraduates? How did you kind of find your niche as a as a professor? Yeah, that's a good question. I I don't think I think I taught one under undergraduate class in um, when I was a graduate student, and since then I haven't taught undergraduates at all. Um, I think, it, you know, it's a little bit by accident, just kind of teaching the courses that I was asked to teach. Um, but I do, but I do enjoy it. Um, you know, it's always fun to um, teach students have a little more work experience. I think that really helps the material come alive for them and it makes for interesting conversations. Um, I think it's better. It's more fun for me and it's a better experience for them. Mm-hmm. What is your favorite part about being a professor? Um, I like not having a boss. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you do you deans and these sort of things, but um, in terms of the research part of the job, you know, no one tells you what you should do research on and what questions you pursue, and so there's just a lot of freedom and autonomy to pursue the questions that you are, you know, personally interested in, personally motivated by. So. And um, the leadership class that uh, you know, I'm sure a lot of students have taken, we talk about the difference between extrinsic and intrinsic motivation. And different jobs are often structured to be more extrinsically versus intrinsically motivating. And being a professor is definitely one where you know it, it's kind of up to you, but you have a lot of freedom to pursue the job in a way that's going to maximize your intrinsic motivation and, and persistence and performance. Some of your writing that I was particularly drawn to was talking about corporations that have tried to put diversity and inclusion programs in place and have ended up having um, unintended consequences or not fully understanding the impact of how those programs would play out once put into place. Can you talk to us a little bit more about um, those corporations and, and those programs that they've put in place and maybe not known how that full impact would come into play? Yes, I, I think it's unfortunately a really common story. And there's, there's sort of two things going on here, right? So, you know, there certainly are companies out there who implement diversity initiatives because they feel like they have to. There's sort of social and legal pressure to do it. And they just do it as kind of mere window dressing. They put, don't put any teeth behind it. They kind of say they have these diversity practices, but it doesn't really affect, you know, day-to-day. They have these policies, but it doesn't affect um, day-to-day practice or experiences in the organization, right? There's sort of this, this decoupling there. Um, But what I'm interested in and what I think is more both interesting and also problematic is that a lot of companies do this and even when they do it with good intentions, they really want to move the needle on diversity and inclusion issues. Um, Sometimes things still don't work out like they're supposed to and can even have some negative effects. Um, So some common things that happen are, you know, companies do this because they um, really want to help minorities, women, whatever the group, the target group is, they want to help them be more successful in the organization. Um, but that can send some negative messages, right? So one really common one is that people who don't fit those, that profile, so maybe whites and men, you know, we have this basic tendency, even if it's not true, to interpret things in a zero-sum manner. So if they see the organization is doing something to help minorities and women, they think, oh, that must make it necessarily harder for me to succeed. And that has negative effects on, you know, their attitudes, both towards the diversity initiative and minorities, um, and toward the organization kind of more broadly. 
Um, another really common thing that can happen is um, sort of backfire effects. Um, so it, it works through a similar process where companies are doing things to help women and minorities be more successful and maybe doing good intentions. But that can also send a message that, well, maybe women and minorities can't, can't achieve these things on their own. You know, maybe they're actually not very competent. And through that process can actually increase discrimination and cause them to have worse outcomes than they would than they would otherwise. What are some workarounds of these of these consequences? Like, how can companies avoid this from happening? Yeah, I think what gets underestimated um, is really the role of messaging. And so I think companies, again, with good intentions and leaders go out and they want to implement diversity initiatives. And they think, okay, now we have this mentoring program. Great. Okay, now we have formal guidelines on you know, hiring processes and sourcing diverse candidates and these sort of things. And so they focus on the concrete message, uh, concrete practices. And what gets ignored or left behind is the messaging. And so I think, um, you know, to do these things more effectively, leaders really need to take control of the narrative and the messaging around diversity and saying, hey, you know, we care about being more just and equitable. And part of that means giving more resources and opportunities to historically disadvantaged groups. Uh, But at the same time, you know, we're not doing this um, at the cost of traditionally advantaged groups, right? And being really clear and explicit around, you know, how the organization navigates this tension, right? Kind of trying to combat those zero-sum perceptions. Um, Another example might be things like, you know, we're this, we're giving extra resources and opportunities to certain groups. We're not doing this because they can't do it on their own. We're doing it because there is, uh, you know, systemic racism and disadvantages that people, you know, experience throughout their lives. And this is our way to, to combat that and really level the playing, playing field as opposed mm-hmm. to giving one group a leg up at the expense of others. When you think about Stern students going out and, and taking their first couple of jobs after their MBA and potentially being a leader of small teams or even large teams, what are concrete actions that we can all take as leaders to create um, diverse and inclusive workspaces where uh, members of our team feel included and, and welcomed? Yeah, I mean, the, the construct and the idea that I really like that I teach in my MBA classes is this idea of psychological safety. Um, particularly for a small team environment. And it's, again, it's something intangible. It's just an informal norm um, or perception about sort of how things tend to work in a, in a team. Uh, but it's just the idea that people feel comfortable um, speaking up, voicing disagreements, and sort of kind of being their, their true self and expressing their true opinions. And it's just normative that people are going to disagree, but that's okay, right? And trying to get people to a place where they don't take it personally, they realize we have different perspectives, um, it's okay to disagree. It's okay to voice voice opinions. And so people feel comfortable doing that around things having to do with both the work tasks, but also then sharing things about their personal life or ways they might be different from the group um, and just kind of encouraging those sorts of norms. I mean, it, it sounds simple, but it's actually quite difficult to do. Um, and so, you know, one thing leaders can do is really try to model it through their own, their own behaviors. I think a follow-up to Kathleen's question um, it's kind of around, he talks a little bit about stereotyping. I think something that is really important is unconscious bias, right? And everyone has this unconscious bias and many studies have proven that, you know, even if we don't want to admit that. Um, and of course that might not align with one's conscious beliefs or declared beliefs, but what advice do you have to kind of fight this unconscious bias, um, as you know, journeys kind of enter the workforce in like these managerial roles? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. I think it's it's really hard, but it's also quite simple. So um, there's this one study that I like to talk about. That actually, was done by my undergraduate advisor Susan Fiss that I like to talk about in my 
leadership class when we talk about diversity and decision-making. And it was a brain imaging study. And briefly what they did was they um, showed people, put people in a, in a functional MRI machine, so sort of measures your brain activity. And they had them process um, faces of black individuals and white individuals. And they kind of measured their, their brain functioning. And what they particularly looked at was sort of a, a threat reaction at a neurological level. And sort of a typical pattern that you would see is that for white participants in the study, you know, the black face would sort of evoke more threat than, than a white face. It's kind of a, a neurological manifestation of, of prejudice, right, or sort of in-group tendencies. Um, but then what they did in this study was they gave people different goals. And so in one condition, they said, okay, you know, think about this person as a person and kind of put them into a, a social category, kind of getting into those bias-type processes. Uh, they had a kind of controlled condition where they said um, there's, a, there's a dot on the people's faces. And they said, okay, just look at the dots. That's sort of non-social processing. But then in the third condition, they said, you know, think about what makes this person unique as an individual. So, for example, what kind of vegetable do you think they might like? And so they found in, in the dot condition was just a control. They got rid of any differential black-white processing because you weren't thinking about the person as a person. But that's not realistic out in the real world. So kind of the key conditions were this, this social category condition versus this um, what vegetables do you like condition. And they found that the what vegetable do you like condition significantly reduced this differential threat response to the black and white faces. So the idea here is that if we just try to give ourselves different goals, right, we sort of actively tell ourselves, okay, I have this potential for implicit bias. I have this potential for treating people differently based on their social groups. And we actually try to override it in our minds and really consciously focus on, I realize I can do this, but I'm going to try to look beyond it and think about what makes this person unique. It changes how we process information and other people in our social world at a, at a neurological level, right? It really is changing how our brains function. And I find that pretty powerful and encouraging because it suggests that, yes, we can change how our brains work. We can override these associations. We can do it at a very deep level. And as a result of that, um, you know, pre prevent any implicit biases we may have from impacting our behavior, impacting how we treat other people. That being said, I mean, it sounds simple, right? So it's, you know, try hard. Try to see people as people. Try not to see them as social categories and groups that they belong to. It sounds really easy, but it's, it's a really hard thing to do. And I think, you know, as a leader, as a person, it means you have to be constantly challenging yourself. Mm -hmm. You have to be constantly engaging in counterfactual thinking. Am I treating this person the way I'm treating them just because they're a man versus a woman? And what if they were the opposite gender? You know, would I do the, the same thing? Those are kind of mental gymnastics you need to kind of constantly be, be going through to try to do this. Are there any kind of bite-sized or concrete actions people can take in their daily lives when they're, you know, out in the world to, like you said, begin questioning those assumptions and, and getting in the habit of looking at things from, from different perspectives? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, um, you know, I think it's easier to think about it from a leader's standpoint. Like, what are things leader can do? So I think you could, if you're a leader and you're concerned about implicit bias, um, you could kind of take a step back, right, and think about, okay, what are the decisions I make in my day-to-day -day work role where implicit bias might be consequential, right? Where whatever implicit decisions I have might result in differential outcomes for people who belong to different groups or have different demographics. And so you can kind of make a list of what those are. So maybe it's, it's making a hiring decision. Um, maybe it's kind of allocating tasks, which people get the good, desirable, high-profile tasks. Um, maybe it's even just, you know, who do you invite to go out to happy hour, right? Or informal thing. Not that mm -hmm. we do that anymore. Virtual happy hour, right? <laughs> informal things like that. Um, and just have a list and, you know, maybe put it up in front of your computer. And whenever you're going to, you know, make one of those decisions, like stop, take a step back and think, okay, am I favoring one group over another? 
um, and thinking about whether or not this person deserves a promotion, you know, what I think about this person's behaviors um, differently if they were a man instead of a woman or a woman instead of a man or a minority instead of a white person or vice versa. Um, as a way, just kind of keep yourself accountable, right? Kind of build that into your standard decision-making process um, and have it be, you know, kind of a, a step in the process that you engage in this counterfactual thinking and just try to check yourself. And the reality is you probably won't catch it every time, right? Because these things can be subtle, um, but it will probably help you do better. So you've done some research around the gender pay gap. Um, and I'm thinking about this because you were just talking about, you know, male versus female. Um, can you describe some of the trends you've seen there? Um, is this something we see at all levels of the corporation? Yeah, so I think the, um, the paper you're probably talking about is the, the female pay premium paper. Um, and so, you know, it, it's well established that women earn less than men. And, um, you know, there are all sorts of studies that have been trying to figure out why. And so you put in all the things that should affect salary, like, you know, education and background and job level and those sort of things. And that shrinks the gap, but it doesn't eliminate it entirely. It takes it from maybe, you know, a 75 or 80 percent pay gap to maybe a like 90 to 95 percent pay gap. So there's something else there. Um, and there's also, you know, a lot of research on, well, why is it? What are the other intangible things that might explain why women are earning less than men are always being equal? And there's good evidence there that it's things like stereotypes, right? That um, people sort of assume that women are less competent and adjunctive than men are, and that hurts their, their pay and promotion opportunities. Um, it's also things like women are expected to be really warm and nurturing and nice, more so than men. And if they don't do that, there's sort of there's backlash, right? And they're displaced for it, and that also kind of hurts their pay. So that's all pretty well established. Um, but in this project, we, my co-authors and I were looking at this sort of perplexing thing that we had noticed, and it had been both in kind of just some, some data we had, um, there'd been some other research on this idea, and it come on uh, talking to sort of executives and our MBA students as well, is that, you know, sometimes this actually flips, right? That in some cases, women actually earn more than men do, all else being equal. And that paper is really about trying to understand why and when this happens. And what we found was that this premium is unique to high potential women. So it's the women that have been designated as likely to rise to the highest level or who have already gotten there. And what's explained by is the prevalence of diversity initiatives and the perceived value of these women from the standpoint of helping organizations um, advance their diversity goals. Um, in terms of why that's the case, it's actually a pretty simple supply and demand type story. So organizations have diversity initiatives. That means there's high demand for women and other groups, you know, in organizations. Um, and generally, you know, women are pretty well represented in organizations where you see them being underrepresented, right, where there's low supplies only in those highest level positions. Um, so just like the tenants of supply and demand would sort of suggest when there is this, you know, scarce and valuable resources that kind of drives up the value and thus the price. Uh, that's essentially what we theorize and find is that, you know, all else being equal, women in general earn less than men. But among this sort of elite group of high potentials, high potential women earn more than high potential win men. Um, that's driven by the prevalence of diversity or initiatives and organizations and perceptions that these women are particularly valuable from the standpoint of helping organizations achieve their diversity goals. And you know, one thing I'll say about that, it's, it's interesting. When, when I first started doing research on this idea with some of my collaborators, it, it seemed very strange to me. I was sort of surprised by it because it goes against all the research on the pay penalty for women. Um, but what's interesting is when we started talking to high potential executive women, and when I started talking about this study in my MBA classes, it was not surprising to non-academics in the least. Uh, in fact, the reaction that, that I commonly got was like, oh yeah, I see this happen in my company all the time. Yeah, I think that was surprising for me to learn um, your research in, in that area too. And, and I 
I guess my follow-up question to that would be, what should women or um, individuals in general in the workplace take from that into their daily actions um, with female colleagues themselves? What are those takeaways for you that, that are helpful in the workplace? Yeah, so this paper is interesting because um, whenever I present it or talk about it, I get two opposite polarized reactions about um, the val- like whether this is a good thing or a bad thing, right? So this is an empirical reality. It happens, really consistent effects. We did four studies. We did, I think, another study that in making the paper, we found the same thing. There's now been some other um, papers come out. So for example, female CEOs tend to make more than male CEOs, right? And some other findings. And so this is an empirical reality. It's happening. And so the question becomes, is this a good thing or a bad thing? And people have very different opinions. So one line of reasoning goes like this. Well, you know, women have faced so much disadvantage um, in society and in organizations. Um, having high potential women paid more than high potential men, that's going to help retain them at the organization. It's going to send a signal to other women more broadly about the value of these women and companies. It's going to you know, help shatter the glass ceiling. And these high potential well-paid women are going to serve as a role model for other women in the company. Okay, so that's, that's one reaction. And then the other reaction is this is pay discrimination. Right. So so women are not a protected group legally. Gender is a protected category. And so what that means, if you have a pay disparity that is discriminatory and illegal, regardless of whether it's benefiting men or whether it's benefiting women. Um, so those are two extremes. I like to be a researcher and stay agnostic. Right? My job is to discover the truth, what is happening, and then companies can decide what they want to do with that, with that information. Um, but what I would say or what I would tell a leader about this is that, you know, companies do pay equity audits. Right? They're sort of responsible for ensuring there's not pay discrimination. And so I think one really concrete takeaway is, well, it's not enough just to look at overall gender differences in your organization. Right? You need to look at, well, what are the gender differences by, um, by pay grade and by um, like level in the company and potential ratings? Um, you know, it's off, our research also suggests this isn't necessarily like a mandate from senior leaders that managers should do this and pay high women more. It's kind of happening just Im- implicitly a little bit. Um, so I think it's really important to bring it to people's and leaders' conscious awareness that this may be happening. Um, they need to look and see if it is, in fact, happening in their organization. Um, and then decide what they want to do, what they want to do about it. And that lack of supply that you talk about um, on the top of leadership, is that due to promotion and retention? And if so, what can corporations do about that? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's due to a lot of things, right? So some of it is probably um, implicit or even explicit bias against women. They're less likely to get promoted right into those jobs. Um but, you know, some of it is probably also due to kind of self-selection out of those jobs, right? And so um, when we start talking about gender, you know, we also have to think about other kind of societal demands on women around caregiving and childbearing. And so, um, you know, a lot of women also make the decision to step out, right? And, and you can interpret those behaviors in two different ways. You can say it's like, well, this is just women's values. They don't really want the high-level jobs. That's one. But then we also have to think about, well, what are the societal constraints, right, that lead to those choices and those decisions as well around, you know, not having enough childcare, around implicit messages about the relative value of these things that women are receiving, right, and all sorts of other factors. So it's more complicated than, you know, this is just women's fault and they don't want to apply for these jobs. Um, when we see that behavior, we do see that behavior, right? Women kind of self-select out of the workforce and out of the, the pipeline for these jobs as well. Um, in addition to being kind of um, denied the opportunities for those women that, that do stay. 
Professor Leslie, how can companies create effective diversity programs? We talked about this a little bit during the first half, but what are those key building blocks that companies should really think about as they go about creating an effective diversity program? Yeah, I mean, I think it. the thing that I've been thinking more and more about is not so much about policies. Now, the policies are important, right? So some things companies do is you want to pay attention to your selection processes, right? So that means both making sure you're trying to source diverse applicants and trying to get them to apply to your company. Um, it means you want to be really careful about your hiring processes, right? Make sure you have well-standardized um, procedures and you're making hiring decisions based on rigorous criteria, right? And that sort of prevents... Um, it both creates a system that's, that's bias-free and also then prevents people's individual biases from being able to manifest themselves in selection processes. Um, then you also want to think about what happens after people join the organization, right? You want to make sure there is kind of adequate um, training opportunities. You want to make sure people have access to mentorship and particularly uh, diversity of mentors who are both power people in the organization and also kind of look like, um, you know, whoever your, your diverse hires are so to speak. Um, same thing around other sources of social support, things like affinity groups, right, where people can kind of come together and talk about career issues that may be specific to their own their own group. So I think those are kind of some of the, oh, and I would add to diversity training, right, for people in the organization, so they're aware of things like implicit bias and systemic racism and, and these sorts of things. So I think those are kind of the key building blocks around practices, right, things that companies that want to have effective initiatives do. But you can't stop with just the practices. Um, that's not enough. I think the messaging also becomes really, um, really important as well. We talked about earlier making sure that people don't infer negative messages from diversity initiatives. You want to make sure they're not assuming that you know women and minorities are being helped to the exclusion of um, you know men and white individuals. And you also want to make sure it's not signaling that the targets of the diversity initiative you know lack confidence or, or need extra help. Um, but one thing that I've gotten really interested in recently, and I'm doing some research on right now, also has to do with, with messaging and rhetoric, uh, but more about how leaders talk about the effects of diversity. Um, so the common way to, to talk about diversity or how leaders often do it is to really emphasize how valuable diversity is, right? Diversity makes us stronger. It's enriching for our employees. It makes us more innovative and drives our performance as a company. It's the morally right thing to do, right? All these reasons why diversity is valuable. That, that makes a lot of sense. It seems like that would be a good way to talk about diversity and to try to get people on board with diversity initiatives, right? Get your employees to be more supportive of diversity in terms of their attitudes and behaviors. But what's interesting about this value and diversity messaging is that it's pretty disconnected from the reality of diversity. So there's lots of research on, you know, is diversity actually valuable, right? Do companies that are more diverse, do they actually perform better? Do people, you know, sort of widely perceive this as the moral and right thing to do? Uh, and the research is actually pretty complicated. What, what it suggests is that, you know, sometimes diverse teams outperform homogeneous teams. And sometimes when companies foster diversity and inclusion, people see that as the moral and right thing to do. But sometimes it's the exact opposite, right? So sometimes when companies become more diverse, uh, those diverse teams and organizations actually perform a lot worse than homogeneous teams and organizations. And some people, sometimes people perceive this as really unfair and sort of morally dubious. Right. So on the one hand, we have leaders rhetoric and they're saying diversity is good. Diversity is good. Diversity is good. But the research is a lot more complicated. What the researcher says is that sometimes diversity is good and helpful, but sometimes it's really um, challenging and even harmful. Uh, what that means is you have to be very thoughtful about creating the right set of conditions under which diversity is more likely to be valuable and beneficial and unlikely to be harmful. 
and challenging. Um, and so kind of based on this idea, something that my colleagues and I have been working on is that, well, actually there's three different ways that leaders might talk about diversity. The most common one is this value and diversity idea. Diversity is great. Diversity is great. Diversity is great. Um, some leaders, if they're kind of reflecting on their experiences, they might instead emphasize, well, diversity is, is challenging. Diversity is difficult. Diversity is hard. But then there's also this third possibility, which is actually the most realistic. Uh, and so what we test and we find is that some leaders talk about diversity in this third way, which we call contingent diversity rhetoric, which is the idea that, yes, diversity is valuable and diversity is good, but it's also hard to get that value in diversity, right? You have to be really thoughtful about how you lead diverse teams and organizations. You have to put the right practices and processes in place. Uh, so then what we did is we looked at this in three different studies. Uh, in one, we looked at how leaders talk about diversity on company web websites. In another study, we um, asked employees of, of a large organization, how does your leader talk about diversity? And then the third study, we did an experiment. We kind of manipulated a leader talking about diversity in different ways. And what we find really consistently is that value rhetoric is, in fact, most common. That's how leaders tend to talk about diversity. But contingent rhetoric is actually the most effective, right? When leaders don't just say diversity is good, but actually diversity is both good but also hard, um, people have more positive attitudes towards diversity initiative, and they report that they personally work harder to achieve diversity inclusion. Um, they're more likely to call out people's other insensitive behavior. They're more likely to kind of be on the lookout for giving resources uh, to women and minorities and other groups. I think um, of organizations that have... Um you know, like diversity um, programs in terms of a one-day workshop and, and things like that. What have you seen work in in something like, I guess I've just been skeptical of um, organizations that might have this one-day event and say, oh, we're doing diversity versus something that might be more continuous and ongoing and, um, and, and things like that. How do you think about that? How often do these discussions need to be happening amongst um, workplace teams in order to really move the ball forward um, in terms of creating that, that diverse and strong workforce? Yeah, so I want to be clear that I think some diversity training is important. Mm -hmm. Needs to be familiar with just general ideas around implicit bias and systemic racism and bias, right? So, a, as a starting point, that's important. But I don't think a one-day diversity training alone is going to do much. Um, you know, I, I think it's important to have conversations around diversity, but I think what's more important is to kind of implement good practices throughout the organization. Um, and so, I think. You know, a systems-based approach, being really thoughtful about your hiring and promotion procedures is probably going to have a bigger effect than just this just a training in isolation. We're thinking of corporations, but at the university level as well, they they have tackled and, and thought about some of these same questions. Are there any unique issues faced by universities when they think not only about who they're hiring, but who they're admitting into certain programs and, and who is teaching in those programs and things like that. Are there any kind of unique aspects at the university level to um, some of these topics? Yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, I think you could argue that, you know, you can think about what the intent of a diversity initiative is. And it could probably be different for different organizations or institutions. And it could be just kind of let's take what we're given, kind of where are people right now, and we're going to sort of not discriminate unfairly, but we're going to take the best people. Um, another approach to diversity initiative would be to recognize, you know, there are um, deeply ingrained pervasive disadvantages that some groups face in society. And so what we want to do with our diversity initiative is um, counteract those, sort of make up for them in the this, this sense of restorative justice. Um, and I think, you know, without 
I think there are merits to both those approaches and not coming down to which one is was right versus wrong. But I think, you know, in the United States, um, educational institutions are supposed to be kind of means of, of leveling the playing field. Um, and so I think there most people would probably see um, there's more kind of pressure for an educational institution to be more explicitly reaching out and thinking about the needs of people who grew up in a disadvantaged setting and trying to, to counteract that in some way to a greater extent than organizations, right? But the idea being then you kind of help groups of disadvantaged kind of bring them up to where other people are. So by the time you go out into the workforce, into organizations, that there's more, there's more equity just from a starting point. In what ways should universities incorporate conversations around diversity inclusion into the curriculum? You know, I think some things that that organizations are doing um, are things like, uh, you know, training for freshmen. So, you know, that kind of sends a signal of values right off the bat as part of maybe orientation when students come in as undergrads. Um, you know, you can think about including it in an MBA launch as well. And I, I think Stern some, does some of that. Um, and then certainly, you know, um, classes on, on the topic as well for people who want to pursue it more, more deeply. But I do think, you know, this might sound like a strange thing for, for me to say because I'm someone who thinks is around thinking about these things all the time. But I do think you can overdo it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do think there's a real a real worry about diversity fatigue. Um, and to be honest, like, even though I, I care about these issues deeply, this is what I think about all the time, I, I at times feel diversity fatigue, right, with all the things going going on. And so I think it's important to get the right balance. And there's been there's been a lot of research that has tied and and you touched on this before maybe it's more complicated than than um, clear cut but there has been research in the past that had tied um, diversity in the workplace to financial performance and, and things of that nature why in that case isn't why are we still not seeing more women or various demographic groups um, represented at those high leadership levels within corporations. Is it that the story is more complicated? Um, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think it's because diversity is really hard. <laughs> I mean, that's the, <clears throat> the simple answer. And so, you know, it, it all stems back to we have these these very deeply ingrained tendencies as human beings to like people who look like us more than people who don't and to use stereotypes, these mental shortcuts. And you know, we can counteract it, but it's hard. And then layered on top of that, you know, you have these pervasive societal disadvantages. And it, it's really about social class. But, you know, there's this overlap between social class and, and race, for example, in the United States. And it um, it creates circumstances that are very difficult for organizations to counteract when people are adults and you're thinking about, you know, who to hire. And so, you know, I think there, there's sort of two things here. And one is, you know, there, there are absolutely some companies who have window dressing diversity initiatives, they don't try very hard, they don't look very diverse, and they, they could be doing better, right? So that, that absolutely happens. I'm not denying that that doesn't happen. But I think that a lot of times there are companies who really care about this issue. They want to do better. Um, they implement sincere diversity initiatives, but they still don't, they still don't see a lot of results because of it. Um, and I think it's because it's a really, it's a really tough problem. And it's something that's so ingrained in society that it's not, you know, it's not realistic to see dramatic results overnight. And um, because of that, I think it just takes, you know, it takes a lot of time and it takes a lot of persistence. I mean, to be clear, I think, I think we all could be doing better and we should all continue to try. Um, and I do think there are companies that, you know, weren't successful in increasing diversity it's because they didn't try hard enough. But I do also think there are companies out there who try really hard and it's just, it's just a tough problem. Um, 
you know, I think because, um, you know, some of the dynamics we talked about earlier, because companies care about diversity so much that um, the really high potential women and minorities, you know, they get just tons and tons of offers and they go to the like very top tier kind of places. And then that tier just below, you know, there's kind of this, this glut in the market, right? There's, there's no longer the supply. And that's a really tricky thing to, to navigate. So I guess I, I put it this way. I often talk about diversity initiatives in this way that organizational diversity initiatives are always going to be a top down solution to a bottom up problem. Right. If we really want to make more progress to diversity and inclusion, if, if I were a CEO and I had a bunch of money to invest in diversity initiatives, I think what I would do is I would donate the money to a nonprofit that is um, trying to implement universal pre-K in sort of low SES areas. Right. I think that um, that's a long term view, not a short term view. It's not going to help my company in the short term. But I think that those are the kind of interventions that are going to be needed if we really want to um, sort of fully address the problem. Well, thank you, Professor Leslie, for being here with us. Um, We really appreciate having you on the show. Thanks so much for having me.